Welcome to our webinar today on independent medical evaluations. And today we're going to compare and contrast those to the use of record reviews in New York workers' compensation cases. I'm happy to be here. Uh, my name is Greg Lois. If you're joining us for the first time, thanks for joining us. Uh, for those of you who keep returning, I'm so thankful that you keep returning. I've realized that we all have so many video conferences to go to and meetings, and now a lot of the fall uh, regular educational events we're doing are all video or virtual, and I just really appreciate everyone uh, taking the time to come visit with us. Today, I'm going to try to make this as chock full of useful practical information as I possibly can about New York IMEs. Uh, and I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about the compare and contrast by using record reviews. And this is especially important uh, in light of the number of COVID-19 coronavirus, coronavirus cases we're defending and how specifically we're going to use record reviews uh, in a lot of those cases. So uh, today we're going to talk about when to get an IME, what the basic rules are, when a records review might make more sense, and uh, both from an economic and also a results standpoint. I'm gonna talk about how you get the best results from your IME. Uh, we'll talk about why that's important in New York and why in New York it's particularly difficult to get a good IME uh, in light of the fact that we can do very little to have private communications with our IME physicians. Also, I'm gonna take a look at what's likely gonna change in the next year or so in regards to IME specifically in this jurisdiction. All right, if you're joining us, it's, this is totally live and I'm glad you're here. Uh, this makes it so much more fun and it makes much more sense uh, if you ask questions while we're going along. So as you ask questions, I can see them pop up and I'll answer as many as I can at the end. I will not say your full name, I'll just say your first name. I will read your question aloud so you know that I'm addressing it uh, and hopefully uh, we can all learn a little bit from each other. So let's talk about when we need a true independent medical examination, which we are gonna define in New York as both a review of medical records as well as a physical examination of the claimant. So uh, obviously you need to do it when you've been directed to do so by the court. And that's typically the scenario where the claimant has come forward and is attempting to establish a claim against you. Uh, and you need to present some contravening, contradictory medical evidence. And the courts will generally give you a very tight timeline, usually 60 or 90 days. And so when you're directed by the court, uh, the best practice is to go out there and secure that independent medical evaluation. Uh, you also have the choice of getting a records review in lieu of a physical examination. And we'll talk about when that's appropriate and when it's not. So when you get one, it's when the court tells you to. A second common reason to get one is when the claimant has an opinion regarding permanent residual disability. In New York, those forms are called C-4.3 forms. Uh, in addition, how about an issue of trying to get the claimant to maximum medical improvement? Uh, as we all say, we know what maximum medical improvement is, but no one's ever seen a New York treating doctor voluntarily re return someone to work or find them at maximum medical improvement. Oftentimes that issue needs to be litigated in New York and the way to do that is with an independent medical examination. Um, when the claimant starts to bring in more and new consequential allegedly related body parts, that's another opportunity for us to get an independent medical examination. And in general, I prefer an IME in those circumstances because I do want a physical examination and sort of a second uh, chance to give this uh, claimant a once-over thorough medical exam. 
Uh, last time thing that I think uh, an independent medical examination is generally preferable to a records review, and that's where there's an issue of causal relationship. Uh, so we're going to be looking at um, both the claimant's complaints and also the alleged injuries, and do these things make sense? Do we think that these things are really uh, related? Now, important from the outset is when we're looking at an independent medical evaluator, what are the things that we're looking for? What are the traits that I want to see? Well, first, I generally want them to have good qualifications. In fact, I want them to have great qualifications. I prefer to have independent medical evaluators who are treating physicians, although that is not a requirement, but I do like to learn that they have current uh, admitting privileges, they are currently sitting, seeing patients, and in general, we're only utilizing board-certified physicians. Uh, we generally have the opportunity to find and utilize better physicians uh, than the claimants usually treating with. Because remember, the claimant in New York can pick any treating physician they want. And do they go to the best doctors? No. They go to the doctors that their attorneys steer them to, or they go to the doctor that they know is going to write them an out-of-work note. Uh, so that's really who they're picking. So we should uh, be able to find physicians with, in general, better paper qualifications and better experience uh, to refute, undermine, challenge, uh, or otherwise contradict the treating uh, medical uh, next thing is I want a competent examination. Uh, the examination reports will typically say how long the physician spent doing a competent physical examination of the claimant. Uh, you know, eight to 10 minutes is great. Uh, that's what we're really looking for. Frankly, uh, someone comes in with a sore knee. I can't imagine the physical exam takes more than two or three minutes, let's be frank. Uh, but generally speaking, we see those um, times anywhere from six to 10 to 12 minutes, and that's about right from uh, our perspective. Of course, the physician will also write down how long they spent reviewing medical records in anticipation for the evaluation. That's also useful to know. Uh, the next thing I'm looking for is a good intake questionnaire. Uh, the board uh, has suggested that they're going to get a, do away with our intake questionnaires. Uh, however, these are extremely useful for us, uh, where the claimant's describing their current complaints and listing their treatment. In fact, I had a meeting today with an attorney in my office who says, can you believe how many times the uh, claimant goes to an independent medical examination and for the first time admits that they've had prior treatment with another doctor for the same body part. Often sometimes that's revealed through medical records, but that's a great uh, source of information for us. When I think of the best evaluators that we utilize, uh, clear, consistent testimony, I'm looking for someone who um, their report is clear, they're not, it's not a bunch of jargon, it's not gobbledygook. It makes sense. Uh, reports are short and to the point. I don't necessarily believe that long, extensive reports are, are more useful. When they're testifying, I need this physician to stay within the four corners of their report during the testimony so they don't go off on explorations. One of the favorite questions that claimants counsel love to do is present our evaluating physician with a bunch of counterfactual scenarios. And they'll say, well, doctor, the day after you examined him, did you know that he was in so much pain he had to lay in bed? Uh, you know, that's an objection. I don't want my doctor answering questions about that. I don't want a doctor who wants to respond to crazy scenarios like that uh, because it gets into the realm of the hypothetical. So it's now left the confines of the doctor's examination and opinion, and now we're getting into just speculation. And so uh, we really have to make sure the doctor doesn't um, get tempted uh, to respond to all sorts of crazy speculation introduced by a claimant's attorney. 
the last thing is my adversary is going to get an opportunity to cross-examine this physician. I need them to stand up to that cross-examination. Again, I need a physician who will stick to their report, will not go off on explorations with uh, or adventures with claimant's counsel and start uh, answering questions about um, did you know, if you had known that, if I told you that, you know, those questions that start off by posing a hypothetical set of facts need to be shut down uh, extremely quickly. All right, first reminder, this is live, so uh, please answer, ask me your questions as we go. Next question is, what do we send to the evaluator? And the answer is we have to be extremely careful in New York because everything we send to the evaluator uh, needs to be copied to all parties and, of course, submitted to the board. The board loves to preclude our uh, correspondence to our, uh, our physician and throw out in, in the physician's report uh, based on either a failure to copy every party with everything that we're providing to the, to the doctor for their review and anticipation of a physical um, uh, independent medical examination. And also the board likes to penalize us where we've submitted the same medical record twice. And that's another grounds for preclusion that the uh, board loves to sustain. So we have to be really cautious about this. But I really do strongly believe that a well-crafted, well-written cover letter to the independent medical evaluator explains to that evaluator, here's exactly what we're looking for in this examination is necessary. And a, a fairly written independent, uh, I'm sorry, an, a fairly written, a objective cover letter is incredibly useful. It helps focus the doctor. Here's the questions we need answered. Here's why we're retaining you, doctor. Here's what we're asking you to look at. And really, please limit yourself to these uh, questions that we're providing to you. So it really needs to be done very well. We spend a ton of time here drafting these. Um, obviously, you can send to the evaluator a proposed questionnaire for them to use, although many of them have their own. I love to send them non-medical documents, uh, and this is something that is underutilized in my opinion. But sending them a, a job description, sending them a work description, sending them any information we have about the the process or the production uh, or the uh, parameters of the job that the claimant is engaged in is so useful for that uh, doctor in determining, does this person have the capacity to return back to that pre-injury job? What can they do? What are their limitations? If there's surveillance video, which demonstrates the claimant uh, able to carry out activities of daily living or do other activities like sporting activities that far exceed well, how we believe the claimant is going to present in the uh, independent medical exam. I think this is an opportunity for us to consider, should we uh, provide it to the independent medical evaluator or should I hold that in my back pocket because maybe it has some surprise value that I would want to utilize at trial. So those are some thoughts that we would have. Uh, in general though, uh, I do believe particularly um, video that just simply demonstrates activities of daily living. You know, it, the kind of video that we often think is a little bit boring because it doesn't show up per se or exciting, exciting fraud. You know, it's not the, the claimant video, uh, uh, video of them uh, surfing or or jumping out of a helicopter or engaging in softball practice. It's just the kind of video we get so often where the claimant's at home allegedly totally disabled, but you have video of them out and out and about driving the car, uh, driving to the corner store, they buy the cigarettes, they buy a six pack of beer, a couple of lotto tickets, they go home. Uh, you just, it's not really exciting stuff, but it definitely shows that they're not totally disabled. They're obviously able to carry on some activities. So that stuff, <clears throat> which is not gonna blow up the case or create a lot of leverage at trial, might be useful to provide to the independent medical evaluator. And that's something on a case by pace basis that we consider. We should be thoughtful about the limitations 
uh, of a independent medical examination. And the main limitation is that we're not allowed to prepare the independent medical evaluator privately. I can't pull them to the side as your attorney and say, look, here's what I'm really looking for. Or, hey, uh, here's what we're trying to get to. Uh, we can't steer and direct them. We have to, if we're going to do any um, direction, uh, it's got to be copied to all parties. It's got, and in general, our advice is always do it in writing. Uh, that way you will avoid uh, your independent medical examination being precluded. However, it also limits the usefulness of it uh, because we don't have a great opportunity to really uh, direct and control what happens in independent medical examination. They really are truly quite independent. So the downsides of an independent medical evaluation, in my opinion, are that you don't have the opportunity to have private communication with your evaluator. Uh, you really are stuck with very public discussion with them. There's no privacy, there's no prep. When your evaluator is gonna be deposed by uh, your opposing counsel, again, you don't have the opportunity to prepare them for that deposition, to try to color, push, persuade, uh, or in any way uh, impact their testimony. So uh, that does leave them open to flights of fancy and of course adventures that our adversary absolutely wants to take them on during their cross-examination. The next thing is, the independent medical evaluator's report in New York is shared with all parties at the same time and in the same manner. So what that means is I don't, as your defense attorney or your risk professional, uh, your adjuster, for example, doesn't get an advanced copy of the independent medical evaluator's report and have the opportunity to change it, revise it, suggest edits, go back to the doctor and go, whoa, why did you mention all these other body parts? They're not part of this case. You know, go, go delete those out because the report is provided to all parties uh, through the same manner of transmission and at the same time, there's no opportunity to sort of react to a crazy report or a report that goes into issues that are not part of your case or expands your case. So those are some significant dangers. Uh, the next thing is, what if the doctor misses the point? I mean, I've actually had this happen where we've told the doctor, I need you to examine the right knee, but the claimant comes in for their uh, independent medical exam and they're only complaining about their left foot and a headache and the doctor starts mentioning in the report and they doesn't really give a great opinion regarding the right knee. Uh, you're stuck asking the doctor to write an addendum. And again, this is slow. Uh, you're now gonna have to send another piece of correspondence to the doctor saying, please, would you please address the right knee, which is the only aspect of this case that I asked you to address originally. Again, those are probably doctors who you're not gonna leave on your panel of evaluators very long, uh, but that's really something to be quite mindful of. Needing to get addendums increases costs, slows down the process, uh, and leads to actually more opportunity for the doctor to screw it up again. So again, I don't really like that. Uh, the process in general is very slow. Under the current notice rules, the claimant has a, a, has a minimum of at least seven business days to be notified of when of that they're being requested to go to an IME. Now, obviously, that's insanely ridiculous. Uh, what does take them seven days of notice? What is that valuable for? I guess we don't want to surprise them. We're also quite limited in the amount of time. The evaluation has to take place during regular business hours, so between 9 a.m. and 6 p.m., which also limits the time, particularly for the working or semi-working claimant uh, trying to schedule them in. And of course, there is a uh, prohibition on doing it on any day that would be considered a Sabbath, holiday, public, or private. And so that does limit the availability of, uh, of IME times. The IMEs itself, uh, with the notice requirements, and then, you know, actually subjecting oneself to a physical examination, does require claimant cooperation. This is a huge problem. Uh, we've got lots of claimants who go into IMEs, and all of a sudden they can't do anything. I mean, I've had claimants who claim that they couldn't even get onto the examining table. And you say, wait a second, I 
we, we know this person is working in some capacity or we've got videotape surveillance of them driving. Like, well, why all of a sudden can they not even sit? And the answer is this does require, there is a subjective aspect to these and they do require climate cooperation, both in, you know, uh, uh, agreeing to this, the, the time and date and place. And then of course, cooperating during the examination itself. All of this stuff is important because any defects in the process or the, the procedures in setting up the examination and then getting the report, providing it all to parties, will result in the preclusion of your evaluation. And these are quite expensive evaluations when you talk about the amount of time and effort and energy spent preparing the cover letter, getting the claimant to the actual event, getting the records reviewed done by the doctor. You know, by the time these IMEs are done in New York, the they're the employer or the insurance carrier are exposed uh, oftentimes for more than $1,000 in time expense. And if the claimant doesn't appear uh, or does appear, and but there is some small defect in process, that IME will be precluded. And oftentimes it is not a do-over. It is that was your chance. You didn't get it done and it's been precluded. Now, our adversaries, and I mean opposing counsel, are very well versed in all of the little technical defects that can occur under section 137 of the workers compensation law and section 300.2 of the rules and those are the two areas where the preclusions come from and so that's something we have to be very mindful of um, a lot of times the claimant misses the first at least one or two imes now in general um, you can do something about it uh, however new york does not allow self-help so if the claimant doesn't attend the IME that's been scheduled for them, even if they never objected to it, in general, we advise clients to schedule a second IME, uh, particularly if you're under a court order to pay, temporary disability, for example, do not stop paying when they miss the first IME. In our experience, the courts will allow them to at least miss the first IME for literally no reason except for, I'm sorry, I forgot. Uh, when they miss the second IME, generally the courts will be a little bit more sympathetic to us as the employers and carriers and saying, what's going on here? Why can't this person show up for an IME? Um, a lot of clients ask me about functional capacity evaluations, which I like. I love a functional capacity evaluation, particularly one of the computerized videotape versions. And I talk to clients about these all the time. Can we force a claimant to attend one? And the answer to that is no, but our IME doctor can request a functional capacity evaluation in New York. And if they do request the functional capacity evaluation and then do review it, it can become part of the body of the case, come in as our medical. I think this is great. Now, if we do get a functional capacity evaluation under the rules, our adversary is allowed to get one, but we don't pay for it. In my experience, claimants rarely get their own functional capacity evaluation. And so this is a good way of moving cases and creating some leverage in a case. In my opinion, a functional capacity evaluation, if performed correctly, is quite objective and will in general stand up to scrutiny. All right. Let's talk about records reviews. And I'll, I could tell you that in this office, we have done a renewed sort of deep dive into records reviews in response to COVID-19. And there's a couple reasons for that, and we'll talk about them right now. First, a records review is essentially an independent medical examination without the physical exam. Again, uh, you're sending a cover letter uh, to the records reviewer saying, here's what I'm asking. Here's the facts as we know them in this case. Uh, here's what I'm asking you to comment or opine upon. And here's the records that I'm sending to you. Now, when you schedule a records review, you don't put any other party on notice, right? This goes on in the background. Claimant doesn't know that you've scheduled the records review. It's one positive aspect to it. 
it doesn't seem to me to be any grounds to preclude a records review result unless it's not provided to all parties three days prior to the hearing at which you're going to rely on it. So much relaxed in terms of notice, there is no notice, and much relaxed in terms of giving uh, the actual final report to all parties. Um, when we should get a records review? Well, first, when a physical examination is not necessary. So let's think about when we don't need a physical exam. One, I'm not arguing about causal relationship. Uh, two, uh, it's not really uh, about necessity of treatment or the, or the need for further treatment. Um, three, when it's something complicated, like maybe I just want an advisory opinion. You know, maybe this claim involves esophageal cancer and Barrett's esophagus, and I really need a good opinion as to whether that's related to this specific chemical that's in the workplace. An independent medical examination is a waste of time for that purpose. Instead, when I'm thinking about issues about complex causation uh, or just out of the ordinary types of injuries or illnesses, maybe that's the right moment to be getting a good records review that I can simply use as an advisory opinion. And I don't need to actually uh, contribute it or send it to court. Sometimes there are issues of treatment which might be amenable to a records review, uh, and in particular where there is a variance request or an authorization request for medical treatment which clearly exceeds the guidelines, and we just need to get a quick uh, medical opinion that's going to say, no, this clearly exceeds the guidelines, we shouldn't be doing it, this treatment um, proposed is experimental or unnecessary, let's not do that. Let's avoid all the unnecessary time and expense, and of course the risk, the procedural risk of getting an IME and instead just get a records review. In general, I don't advise that we get records reviews as to causal relationship. In fact, I think that's one of those circumstances where when the method of injury, uh, the specific act that allegedly injured the claimant is at issue, we should have a physical examination and give us at least a second bite at that apple to really go after why is this uh, claimant making the allegations they're making. And in general, I don't recommend a records review for issues of permanent residual disability. Now, we've been talking about records review, particularly in this office, and making a lot of recommendations recently in regards to COVID-19 cases. And I do think that it is probably a best practice that for most COVID-19 claims, a records review be considered. And the reason a records review should be considered is because in general, they're going to be responding to something that's usually nothing more than a diagnosis at best and, and or a net opinion at best. And so a physical examination is probably not necessary to attack the diagnosis. When you look at the COVID-19 cases, let's think about how we are going to defend them in New York. And how we've been defending many of them in New York has been defending them on the issue of A, the diagnosis itself is faulty in some way. In the beginning, diagnoses were being issued for COVID-19 based on symptomology, which is subjective, uh, with maybe some, uh, uh, you know, confirmation by the diagnostician, and sometimes even things as silly as a chest X-ray. Uh, and in, and particularly in the beginning, we had cases that were coming and that we were defending, where the claimant's saying, "Well, because of COVID-19, I'm afraid to go to the doctor and get an actual diagnosis. But here are my symptoms. You should just declare this compensable." Uh, that's a perfect opportunity to refute that with strong medical that just simply says, uh, "You had a runny nose and a fever," and that's not enough to establish a COVID-19 infection, right? So we have the, so I help, I think it's useful in all those cases, we don't have an antibody test that's uh, from the right chronicity and we don't have an RNA test. So that's an easy group uh, to go to the records review. Next, uh, we have a number of claims for COVID-19 that have been brought simply uh, by saying, I've got a positive antibody test. And so 
uh, picking a physician who's able to both understand what that antibody test means, how to interpret it, what are the fallibilities of the test, and going right after it. You know, those antibody tests, at best, will not show a COVID-19 infection until at least a week after the infection has elapsed so that enough antibodies have actually developed in your body. And really the golden time is one to three weeks after the alleged infection. So if someone's using an antibody test uh, to establish a date or a, a, a vector of exposure, really uh, having a physician who understands the test, understands the fallibilities of the test, and then uh, can help uh, present that opinion to you is gonna be very useful. And the last aspect of COVID-19 is uh, the RNA test. Uh, currently, there are only 58 RNA tests which are approved by the CDC to test for COVID-19 infection. The RNA test is only valid during the period of an active infection. And without even getting into the science of what RNA amplification does to the validity of underlying tests, uh, we've been able to have some of these tests excluded by uh, the records review simply saying, uh, look at the date of this test compared to your la last date in the employment, knowing what we know about the incubation period, this is not possibly related to the employment. And so again, we do think that those are strong uh, opportunities to use a records review. And the last one is purely tactical, which is if you get a records review that you're not happy with, that does not need to be filed with the court or supplied to any party. Again, if you're not gonna rely on it in court, it's like it never happened. And so for those reasons, record reviews should be considered uh, in the alternative to an independent medical examination or maybe as a precursor for perhaps, for example, to get an advisory opinion that you're going to then uh, later confirm with the physical examination. So those are some tactical considerations to think uh, about um, records reviews. Uh, what's likely coming in 2021? Well. In December of last year, the IME Investigatory Advisory Committee did uh, provide its suggested new changes to the workers' compensation law, and they are extremely limited. Uh, remember, they were charged with evaluating perhaps the use of panels, perhaps taking away the opportunity of the insurance carrier or employer uh, to choose their own IME physicians, et cetera. And they've come back with extremely limited uh, advice and that advice is to remove the regular hours requirement from the time for IMEs. So in other words, allowing independent medical examinations to go take place at night, particularly on weekends, and to reduce or relax the notice requirement. Now they would still um, have a seven day notice requirement that the claimant couldn't be just called up the night before and say, you've got to go to this IME, but they are relaxing all the use of forms and the uh, procedural paperwork, which really makes the scheduling of an IME quite difficult. Uh, so those are the things that we're seeing that are uh, likely to change, likely uh, in 2021. Other ideas that are out there, including the use of panels or limiting IME doctors. Uh, so far, we've seen the board sort of shift focus and refocus now on COVID-19. Uh, and so uh, I'm not going to speculate about uh, any of the other uh, proposed changes that could possibly happen. All right. I still got a lot of people with me. I'm glad you're still here. Uh, I'm going to go open up the questions panel. I hope there are some interesting questions for me uh, about the use of IMEs and uh, records reviews. All right. Uh, got some funny ones here looking right at the start. Okay. Uh, Leonard, it says, what is your opinion on defense counsel submitting the IME peer request uh, versus the carrier doing it? And so I guess what you're suggesting here is uh, who actually files the paperwork? In general, it is uh, the people that are doing it are vendors uh, who are scheduling the IMEs. Um, in general, it is fraught 
with the potential for procedural error. Uh, and so therefore, we're generally letting that uh, be done by the vendors. Um, Leonard asks a follow-up question, which is what's your approach to a report that goes outside the scope of the evaluation being requested? Do you recommend an addendum request? Yeah, unfortunately, if they start opining about other things that we haven't requested them, by the time we'd get an addendum request, the toothpaste is kind of already out of the tube, and now it's out there. I could get an addendum where the doctor could say something like, hey, you asked me to evaluate the right knee, but I gave you all sorts of opinions about uh, uh, TMJ syndrome and headaches and his left ankle. I shouldn't have done that. Ignore all that. Uh, here's what my findings are for the right knee. That's fine. Uh, but just be warned, it's going to be really, that's not going to be excluded, for example, by the judge considering the case. All right. Durain says, Greg, I joined a minute or two late. What is an IME? An IME is uh, the abbreviation for independent medical examination. All right. Another one from Leonard. Excluding time constraints. When is a peer report better than IME? I think I talked about that just now. I think there are some advantages to a records review. And I think case by case, and particularly cases in, involving uh, not issues, for example, of causation or what determinant act occurred, but really we're starting to look at complex issues or I just need an advisory opinion. I think in general, that's when a peer review is great. Um, as a matter of course, Greg, do you ask the IME examiner to opine on the need for a functional capacity evaluation? Yeah. So in an orthopedic injury case or a case where the only issue is permanent residual disability, uh, and I really need to get a better objective idea of what this claimant can do, Yes, in general, I am suggesting to the IME physician in my cover letter, I will literally put in there, uh, do you think, would it, would it be useful to you in determining overall permanent residual disability if you had a functional capacity evaluation? And really kind of leading them where I want them to go, which is to say, yeah, sure, I'd love to review another objective data point you know, versus the medical records of the treating doctor who finds that they've been totally disabled forever and their uh, MRI findings by themselves and this person's complaints. Sure, another objective data point. I've never heard a doctor really say, no, thank you, Greg. So we do try to steer them uh, towards that. Uh, Mary asked the question, well, great. Uh, if a treating doctor recommends a functional capacity evaluation, would we pay for that? The answer is yes. And they can be quite expensive, particularly a good ones. Uh, those uh, uh, cases uh, or those types of evaluations usually take four to five hours if they're done right. Uh, they involve a lot of testing as well as distraction testing, and they can be quite costly. So that's something to be thought about. Okay, Mirage asked a lot of questions, but they're all one or two sentences. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip those. Mirage, I'll talk to you after this to try to winnow out what's going on there. Maybe you had a problem typing into the box. Uh, Steve asks, uh, do you have recommendations on psychiatric IMEs and fighting cause relationship, uh, particularly with uh, past conditions known? Uh, I don't think I've ever heard a doctor say causal relationship does not exist for psych conditions. Okay, so you're right. So uh, psych conditions are one of our adversaries' most fun, in my opinion, throw-ins. And if you're a claimant's attorney, aren't you always, every time you talk to your client, saying, hey, you're a little bit sad about how things are going, right? Uh, and you're anxious about returning to work, aren't you? Maybe you should go see a psychiatrist, right? Uh, you know, I think they are steering them into that and loving to get those kinds of diagnoses because they are incredibly difficult to defend. Again, these are essentially subjective complaints. Also, the two most common, generalized anxiety disorder as well as depression, 
are the two most common in the general population. In fact, there's very interesting statistics about the percentage of our adult uh, American population, which is currently on a psychotropic drug to deal with depression and or anxiety. And it's something like one in five Americans, regardless of causality, regardless of workers' compensation claim. So just in the standard setting, there's this huge number of people that are on psychotropics anyway. And so really to attack those diagnoses, you're going to need a very good history. We're going to have to talk about, did this person have these conditions beforehand and they're just now getting treatment for it? Uh, and then, of course, in the general population, these conditions, again, anxiety disorders and depression, are extraordinarily well controlled under psychotropics. Uh, and so I think someone who's claiming that they're significantly disabled because of uh, generalized anxiety disorder depression, again, those are the two most common psychiatric illnesses I observed, uh, really uh, are, should be well controlled with medication and should be quite functional and return to the employment. All right, scrolling down. Uh, scrolling down, there's a lot from you, Mirage. I see you looking at this uh, about payroll questions and um, also some exposure questions. So I'll talk to you after this because these are not really on the topic of IMEs, but a lot of questions in here and I, I love that. All right, um, that's it for this week. Next week or next month, I hope everybody comes back. If you have any questions I didn't get to yet or didn't have a chance to answer, please feel free to reach out to me. I hope you guys have a great uh, end of September.